Good morning. Thanks for having me back one more time, despite what the bulletin may say, someone pointed out to me. Um, in, in reality, you didn't have a choice, but thank you, and hang on, Randy will be back. Randy will be back. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful that one day we will be with you in your presence. And that one day will never end. And we will see you face to face and we will be like you. We will join that ceaseless chorus of worship with those who have gone before and those who will follow us of every tribe and language and tongue. We look forward to that day and we ask that you would speed its coming. In your name, amen. Failing to succeed. It was, it was my lame attempt at a title that could be taken one of two ways. So let's take it one of two ways. We're going to be talking about John chapter 21 and failure. Failure. There were large posters outside New York City's Madison Square Garden, which read like this, posing the question, can the aerialist Tito Genoa, spinning at 75 miles an hour, accomplish the most difficult acrobatic feat of the 20th century? In his book of heroic failures, the British author Stephen Pyle observes that the answer was no. No. Tito Genoa attempted this stunt every single day for nine months and failed every single time in what he calls a magnificent, a magnificent season of failure. Never pulled it off, nine months, every day. He talks about the biggest bus service failure that occurred in Staffordshire in 1976, where people began noticing that buses just started to routinely sail past lines of up to 30 people at the bus stop. It became so pronounced that the town councillor had to be brought in, and he responded by saying that if the buses actually stopped and picked up people, that it would disrupt the timetable. <laughs> if the buses stopped, we would disrupt the timetable. So if, if nothing else, at least the buses were on time. And then my personal favorite is what he calls, I don't know how you can make this a category, but he did the biggest safety film failure in history. The British Aircraft Corporation produced a film on the dangers of not wearing protective eye goggles. But it turns out that the film was so violent and graphic that one welder on actually watching this film fell off his chair and needed seven stitches. Other people needed to be routinely helped out of the theater under assistance because they had become nauseous or thrown up. It was so graphic. So finally, the divisional safety officer had to withdraw the film. He had to withdraw the safety film because, in his words, the film was unsafe. <laughs> people were getting hurt watching the safety film. Now, 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 in reality, none of these failures are particularly devastating for us. Our, our days would likely largely still remain intact if a circus performer fails on a stunt 
Our kids might be more devastated, but, but these, these realities happen. Or if indeed we would miss a bus or two, if we even use the bus as Americans. Other failures, however, have more serious consequences. Peter, the apostle, was dealing with the biggest failure in his entire life, having once boasted that he would never abandon Christ, even in the face of death. Peter denied that he ever knew Christ three separate times. And with Peter's final denial in that moment, it would seem as if three years of discipleship and training and sharing and shaping and building on the part of Jesus was nullified and left in a heap of rubble. John picks up the scene in John chapter 21, usually entitled Jesus and the Miraculous Catch of Fish at the Sea of Galilee. This is uh, on page 769 in your pew Bibles. Peter has been told to wait for Jesus in Galilee, but he's not sure what to do with himself. So as a fisherman, he returns to that which he knows best, his occupation, his former career, which may appear to be his new career. Again, fishing, fishing. It's interesting that John doesn't record anything that may have been said in the boat during that evening. And I think probably because there was nothing said at all. Staying up all night and fishing without success would have given Peter ample time to replay his failure over and over in his head. That final look from Jesus after he had denied his Lord the third time And we read, Jesus looked at Peter directly. I wonder if that pained look, our sorrowful look on Jesus' face, wasn't still etched in his mind as he stared into the abyss. How how could he not? How could he not remember? We all become quite adept, some of us very skilled at recalling our past failures. I do it almost as a second nature. It just kind of comes naturally. But for Peter, it would be hard not to reflect on the deep, deeply painful irony of this situation. It wasn't it after all Jesus who plucked Peter out of the water and said, follow me because I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Yet here he is back at his old job. Lots of us likely have jobs that are in our past and we're glad that they are in our past, that we have moved on. Imagine for a second having to go back to that job that you formerly despised or perhaps the job at which you felt constricted, like you were missing your calling. Maybe you had a terrible boss. But where Peter once entertained great hopes of fishing For the lost in the kingdom of God, he's now resigned to hopefully catch a few fish. But the irony continues because on this night there were not even fish. Empty nets, empty dreams, empty future. What would have maybe provided some kind of welcome diversion became a void filled with tormenting thoughts. 
if only I could have that moment back. If only I could undo those words and take back what was said. Ever said anything you've later regretted with no opportunity to make things right again? Ever let somebody down? Ever turned your back on someone? Got a particular event or relationship that you would just love to have a do-over? Hit reset, start again? I can't help but think that Peter was likely rehearsing those kinds of thoughts in his mind on this night amongst with his fellow disciples who all failed and abandoned Jesus at a critical moment. But dawn, dawn breaks, thankfully, in, in, in more than one sense of the word. John tells us at dawn a visitor appeared on the shore. And John, the beloved disciple, was the first to recognize him. This occurred after the stranger on the beach had told the disciples to fish from the other side. And John tells Peter in verse 7, it is the Lord. John perceives, Peter acts. Throws on some clothes and jumps into the water. Uh, More literally, he hurls himself into the water. Why did Peter fling himself overboard? I think it was hope. Hope that it wasn't too late. That things were not so far gone that they couldn't be fixed. Hope for forgiveness. Hope for reconciliation. And what Peter was hoping for, I think, is confirmed in the rest of the story, which we'll spend most of our time looking at. And the message, I think, is this. Our failures are no match for Christ's faithfulness. Our failures are no match for Christ's faithfulness. And and from this passage, this brief interaction between Christ and Peter, we see that Christ changes his perspective in offering forgiveness. He calls Peter, he gives him a calling, uh, and he confirms Peter's future success. A, A paradigm, I think, that Christ still offers us today. A paradigm that Christ offers those of us who have wandered off the path. Or, in some cases, jumped off the path and have run the other direction. First, Christ, Christ overcomes our failures, failures by changing us. By changing us. And it's, it's worth noting here that Jesus does this quite gently. He asks Peter some simple questions. The same question, actually. Do you love me? Do you love me? It's not a condemning question. It's a probing question. Not, you know, how could you have done this? Or, man, you really, you really blew that one. I thought you were with me. I thought you were with me. No, it's a simple question. Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And these questions are designed, I think, to change Peter, to change his perspective. 
The first time Jesus poses this question to Peter in verses 15, he, he kind of adds uh, a little extra insight here. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these that are seated around the fire? After all, earlier, Peter had separated himself above the others. Matthew 26, even if all fall away, Peter says, I never will. That ought to undermine discipleship, discipleship oneness there. These guys may fall away, not me, not me. Peter affirms his love for Jesus and leaves out that qualifying phrase and just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Jesus isn't done. He comes back at it two more times. Two more times until verse 17, we read that something happens to Peter. In 21:17, we read that Peter is hurt. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? See, it, it took a while, but Peter finally got it. He, he got something that morning. There was something deeper going on than a simple verbal affirmation of love. Peter is saddened. I would argue that he's had his perspective changed a little bit. These questions, these questions weren't for Jesus. They were for Peter. They weren't for Jesus' benefit, but for Peter's. What then was Peter beginning to learn? What, what did he learn in this hurt? And I think there's, there's two things here. The first is Peter learned that Jesus readily forgives. He readily offers forgiveness. The parallelism is unmissable. Jesus offered Peter the chance to affirm his love for Jesus the same number of times that he had previously turned his back on Jesus, effectively putting Peter's past failure to rest. Something the Apostle Paul spoke of in Philippians, forgetting the past and moving forward. Three denials, three affirmations. Only this time, it's in a setting where he could not fail. What he couldn't do in the heat of the furnace, in the heat of battle, he was able to affirm sitting around a campfire with some friends. Not only does Jesus change Peter's perspective by forgiving him, I think it's clear that Peter begins to realize that his rejection of Jesus actually pained Jesus himself. Perhaps Peter was becoming fixated on his own feelings, how bad Peter felt for disowning Jesus. What about how Jesus felt? We typically only ask those questions when we look at or talk about the crucifixion. How did Jesus feel? What about the rest of his ministry? It's all too easy for us to forget that Jesus, though fully God, is also fully human. And historically, some theologians have asserted that God in his nature is impassable or essentially unaffected by his creatures, a thought which stems far more from Platonic philosophy than it does the Bible. It hurt Peter to have his question or his devotion questioned by being asked the same question three times, Lord, you know that I love you. How much more was Jesus hurt for being denied three times? 
just, just bear with me, think about this for a second. There's a general rule in relationships, I think, a common dynamic which takes place when there are unequal levels of commitment between a couple. That is, when you fancy someone more than they fancy you, or when you like someone more than they like you. Who in that kind of relationship is more vulnerable to pain and suffering? The person who cares more or the person who cares less? It's typically the person who's more heavily invested in a relationship, who is more vulnerable to suffer more when things go wrong. I learned this lesson early on in life, my first relational breakup at a church camp. I know it's hard even to imagine that someone would want to break up with me. Um, We'd been dating for at least three months. Uh, I was 13. It was a very serious relationship. And we we went up to Minnesota for a church retreat. And she met somebody new. And then actually sent one of her friends to break up with me. Um, Now... On the outside, I was almost utterly indifferent to this whole thing, but on the inside, I was devastated, and I held out hope for reconciliation for months. Um, Who suffered more? Who invested more in the relationship? Certainly, I wasn't perfect, but she had moved on. You know, life was good, and I was left with the reality that the person who had once chosen me had now chosen somebody else. How much more than for Jesus, who, though fully God, was fully man, who, in our relationship with Christ, has the greatest potential for pain and suffering. Thankfully, Christ does not give up on us when we fail him. And one of the dangers for us is thinking that Peter's denial was worse than anything we would ever do. After all, Peter's life was at stake. His life was at risk. But if we think about it, I think we routinely deny Christ under even less harrowing circumstances than Peter endured. We deny God and we shut out his voice or put off doing a task that he's been calling us to do and we know it. We fail God when we write off others, so to speak, because they're too far from God or have wandered too far from the faith or simply because they're not like us. Or maybe they just rub us the wrong way. We fail God when we don't give sacrificially. We deny God when we fail to follow his leading. We deny God when we place our significance in possessions or power or position or prominence. Lots of opportunities for us to turn our back on Christ. But John 21 tells us that the pathway back to God's service is always, it's always open. But it's not an easygoing path. It's a painful path. It involves some painful lessons. But what we see here is that Christ is faithful and gentle and desires reconciliation. He loves us as we are, but he is also in the business of conforming us to his image. And this will typically involve some painful changes. If Christ overcomes our failures by changing us, by changing our perspective in forgiveness... Christ also overcomes our failures by giving us a calling. He doesn't just stop with the forgiveness or the change of perspective with Peter, but he gives him a calling. Not just a command, 
Three times he responds to Peter, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. So not only has Jesus given Peter the opportunity to reaffirm his love, though in a broken form, in word he also gives Peter a particular calling. I like what the New Testament commentator Don Carson has observed about this passage, that Jesus doesn't just say, be a pastor, or hold the office of a pastor, but uses the verbs directly, feed my flock, take care of my sheep. These are more than just commands. They were specific to Peter's gifting and abilities, as we see very clearly in the opening chapters of Acts. A calling is not necessarily opposed to a command, but a calling is rather something more. A calling is something more. Our calling comes from God, and it takes into account our passions and our giftedness, and infuses regular tasks with a higher purpose. A calling infuses regular tasks, tasks with a higher purpose. And though callings will often take us on difficult and rocky paths, many have rightly noticed that joy often attends the way. One of my favorite quotes from Friedrich Buchner talks about our calling, our vocare in Latin, to call. Our calling from God is the place where our deep joy and the world's deep hunger meet. Where our deep joy and the world's deep hunger meet. I like what Mother Teresa has said too. Profound joy of the heart is like a magnet that indicates the path of life. One has to follow it even though one enters into a way full of difficulties. I came across that quote when I was in the process of leaving Motorola and could hardly bear to go into work anymore. Uh, I clipped this out and stuck it up in my cubicle knowing that Scotland was around the corner to pursue a PhD, knowing that that path was one that God was calling me to take, but being a bit anxious at the same time. Suspecting that indeed there would be moments of joy and moments of pain and suffering, which all proved very, very true. But I saved that little piece of paper and I stuck it up in my little PhD cubicle in Edinburgh. Looked at it probably every day. Probably every day. Some days I just glanced at it and said, hmm, yes. Other days I kind of hung on to it. Sometimes a calling is different than a career. Scary, scary words. A calling is different than a career? Peter was likely a career fisherman before Jesus gave him a new calling. But a calling doesn't necessarily require that we give up our professions, or our careers. But make no mistake, either way, if you are a Christ follower this morning, you have been given a calling. It need not involve working at a church or shepherding the flock. There are many Christians who are perfectly happy not to have the responsibility of pastoring a church. And I am one of them. Seminary confirmed that very early on. So what's your calling? What has God called you to do? Some maybe haven't given it much thought. You're not sure. Some of you need to start looking 
for a calling. You've affirmed your love for Christ, you are a Christ follower, but you haven't yet figured out what your purpose is. And that's an enormously frustrating and at times deadening place to be. But you have a calling because God has created you for a purpose, created you with special gifts and abilities to, to perform. A calling with profound joy even amidst inevitable obstacles and struggles. There are books you can try that help you identify where you may be gifted. There are numerous spiritual gift assessments that you can take that would help you identify uh, what it is that kind of makes you tick spiritually, where you naturally thrive, where others struggle. You don't even need to take that scientific of approach. Mike talked a couple weeks ago about volunteering and trying some things out, getting involved if you're passionate about something. It is likely related to your spiritual gifts and your calling. And it may at times even involve a position of lower visibility, like intercessory prayer. That was my grandmother's calling later on in life as she became more confined to her house. But her little greenhouse with the big pine tree on 1216 East Denison was no little house. In God's kingdom, that house was an epicenter of spiritual activity. And she nearly prayed me through my whole PhD. Others of you may have some idea of what you want to do, but you haven't followed through yet. Maybe God's been prompting you to do a particular task. Maybe it's here at church. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with a neighbor or coworker, but you've been kind of dragging your feet. So here's our wake-up call collectively. Life is too darn short. Some of us are painfully aware of that here. Life is too short. If Christ overcomes our failures by changing our perspective, by giving us a calling, finally he overcomes our failures by confirming us, confirming future obedience. Verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. This is shorthand in the Greek for pay attention. What I'm about to say is significant. This is the exact same preface that Jesus reminded and told Peter of earlier in John 13 when he predicted Peter's denial. Now, however, Jesus affirms Peter's devotion by foretelling of his crucifixion. I tell you the truth, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus, in the end, does confirm Peter's brash and earlier statement that he would indeed be willing to lay down his life for Jesus. A fact recorded in all four of the Gospels. He tells Peter in the way in which he would glorify God. And that's the wonderful irony of grace. For Jesus essentially confirms what Peter had first claimed but was unable to do. It's also worth noting in verse 18 that the words stretch out there are in the active voice. Jesus does not say to Peter, does not tell Peter, someone will stretch out your hands. But he says, you will stretch out your hands. 
I think that signifies a willingness to endure pain and suffering. And according to church tradition, Peter was crucified upside down, not considering himself worthy to suffer in the same manner in which his Lord had suffered. Now, our path will likely not involve crucifixion or martyrdom. (laughs) But please make no mistake, if you are a Christian, if you've turned your back on him, God has great plans for you. If you have turned your back on him or have failed God, he still has great plans for you. Because when we fail Christ, he doesn't fail us. He changed Peter by questioning him, by probing the inner workings of his heart. He gave Peter a calling. He even confirmed his future obedience. And they demonstrate a fundamental point that Christ never gives up on us. He demonstrates his mercy and forgiveness to someone who had completely and utterly failed him. This kind of story is strikingly absent in our culture. We hear a lot about zero tolerance, especially come election time. Zero tolerance regarding school security, regarding drug dealers, U.S. President candidate John Kerry in the last election talked about zero tolerance for gang violence. Very safe, innocuous political statement to make. Zero tolerance for certain behaviors and attitudes or words. But, but the, the troubling thing here is that we in religious circles, we are equally comfortable with this idea of zero tolerance. One of my favorite signs of all time It's the no trespassing sign. Uh, All violators will be, without exception, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And then, I couldn't find it on the internet, but it's signed by the Sisters of Mercy. (laughs) Um, Sisters of Mercy. Uh, And please, this is not an attack on Roman Catholicism. We Protestants are just as adept at excluding others or adopting our own convenient zero-tolerance policy. It's easier to condemn from a distance than it is to embrace. But think about this for a second. What what if Jesus had adopted a zero tolerance policy with Peter? Hmm. What if Jesus had given up on Peter? What if Jesus had invoked a zero tolerance stand towards him? Well, for starters, you can take pages 857 and 861 out of your pew Bibles and just rip them out. Please don't do that. But um, there would be no first and second Peter. There would be no words to Christians in the diaspora who were spread about because of suffering under much persecution. If Jesus had given up on Peter, the man lying at the gate called beautiful, crippled from birth, would not have been healed. If Jesus had given up on Peter he likely would have remained an anonymous fisherman in Galilee with no calling outside of making a living. But thankfully, he did not give up on Peter. Christ did not give up on Peter, this failure of a disciple. This failure of a disciple who was once afraid to acknowledge Christ to a servant girl in the dark was now emboldened to proclaim the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, cutting the Jews to the quick, 
where 3,000 people were added to the kingdom in one day. All in broad daylight. All because Christ overcame Peter's failure. So what about our failures? What about your private failures? What if Jesus had instituted a no tolerance policy with us? Forget everything else that's been said so far. Please remember this. There is no failure in your history that negates a future of service for him. There is no failure in your history that negates future service for him. God has no zero tolerance stance towards us or our failures or our sin. Not even our sin. He did so much more taking sin on himself, becoming sin, becoming accursed on our behalf so that we can have newness of life. There are no hopeless cases in God's kingdom. We as Christians are not called to tolerate people but to open ourselves up to the world as messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ which means opening ourselves up to suffering and rejection and disappointment and hurt and especially, especially to those to whom the world no longer tolerates. And we miss out on everything if we allow our past failures to write us off when God himself has not written us off. I have no doubt that there are some here this morning who feel as if you are very, very far from God. Maybe you are mired in a pattern of sin from which you cannot seem to escape. Maybe you feel kind of numb inside. Perhaps you're in a relationship that's not honoring him. Maybe you feel as if you have approached the limit of God's forgiveness. You know, zero tolerance is right around the corner. But he's offering us an invitation by the fire on the beach. Simply to say, I love you. And for some of us here, merely to affirm our love for him is enough. That might be the first step, and that may be enough. Jesus, you know I love you. Despite the mess of who I am, despite the mess of who we are collectively as Christ followers. Jesus never told Peter to prove it when he affirmed his love. So tell God you love him. It may be that all, that's all God's asking you to do today, however imperfect that love is. And for now, that's enough. For others, it's time to find your calling. You know you're forgiven. There's a future out there. and You're not sure where, it leads, where it's leading, where you need to go. It's time to find your calling. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, it's not too late to become what you might have been. Because Christ is bigger than our failures. He changes us, he gives us a calling, and he confirms our participation and obedience. Let's, let's pray.